And hello, welcome to God's Pathway to Life, and welcome back. I'm glad you returned for another episode. I really don't have a format or a schedule uh, that I'm putting these out at. I'm just kind of seeing if there's enough need and if I get enough response. If it starts to grow in response, then we'll I'll try to figure out a schedule for it. Uh, but for right now, I'm just kind of, when it comes to mind, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a, a podcast. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about <clears throat> when uh, you go on this path uh, for God, and God puts you on a pathway, and you start to seek after Him. Sometimes, when you go on this path, you'll have uh, friends and family in your life that you've had uh, before your walk. And then after you get into your walk with God, because uh, you're going to start walking on a different path. Your, your friends and your buddies and everybody else that you've known on, known for this, your whole entire life, we're, we're all walking on this path to hell if you was lost and now that you're saved. They were all walking on this path to hell because lost people hang out with lost people. You know, you might know some Christians, but not too many. But a, a majority of people that are lost hang out with other lost people, and that's why they're lost. And they're on their way to hell, but they don't realize it, and everybody's having a good time, so no one ever pays attention to where they're going. They're just all walking somewhere. So when you go on this pathway to God, with God, and, you, and, you, and you're doing your walk, you're, you're going to come to a point where there's going to be a fork in the road. And your friends are going to want to go down the path they've always gone down. But you know going down that road, there's no payoff at the end of it. And so that's why you're here. You're looking for a different road. Well, if you look to the other road, the right, say right or left, if you look to the right, you're, you're, that's where Christ is. And that's your Christian walk that you have to have. And, and in your Christian walk, you're going to have to forsake some things in your life. And it's not going to please your friends. They're going to get upset about it. And so uh, that's kind of what uh, this podcast is about. It's it's uh, it's about you know you're gonna you you you're, you might uh, you might lose some people along the way with your Christian walk, but if you're a good Christian and you pray for your friends and you try to bring your friends along with salvation, I have friends that I I, I don't see anymore because of my Christian walk. God has pulled me on a different path. My path is going down a different road. Their path is going down a different road now. Our paths no longer are joined together. There's a great divide between our paths, and I, long, I no longer see that person in my life. You know, so it, it's true. It does happen. And it's sad to say that, but it, it's, it's a part of the Christian walk. Uh, but today I got a special... Uh, a thing I want to use, uh, I got an audio clip uh, from uh, South Heights Baptist Church website, and that's the church I belong to. And uh, by the way, I, I, I invite you to church. Uh, come to church. It's on Facebook Live. Look for South Heights Baptist Church. It's in Sepulpa, Oklahoma. And uh, we do a live feed uh, Sunday morning and at uh, 11, and we do, an again, a, another live feed at 6.30 at night, these are Eastern Central Standard Time is the tar our time zone, and uh, Wednesday night at seven o'clock. And all these are live feed, and there's uh, a lot of great information uh, on the web on the Facebook page. And you can also go to the website uh, southheightsbaptistchurch.com 
and uh, there's a media uh, part that uh, holds a lot of information in it. So I, I invite you to church. Uh, come to church with me, virtually, if you want. A lot of information that you'll need to find out about the church, the website, all that, the email address, all that will be in the detailed description on the podcast. So just scroll down, and all that information, I'll have the email address. Uh, the email address for the prayer list, again, is uh, godspathwaytolife.com or godspathwaytolife at gmail.com. And uh, we're still doing the prayer list, so hopefully somebody will uh, send an email so we can get something out there. Okay, so uh, that's all I really had today. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you Like, again, if you feel uh, the need to donate to church, to a church, you know, you can gladly donate to my church. I don't receive any money for this podcast. I don't receive any cash of any kind. Uh, this is all just done out of, uh, for, this is what, how I walk. This is my walk. This is the way I can get through his word out there. So this is, uh, I have no problem with funding. I'm okay. But uh, my church is small. We have a small limited, small amount of people in there that come to church and, and our facebook live seems to be growing a lot and, and we're getting a lot of good people that said uh, uh, help her helping us out we've had one person uh coming to the church and said i, I watch off the internet and i make it like to make a donation so I, that's really great so i appreciate that and thank you for that donation out there Okay, so uh, uh, what a special treat today is like i said i got this off the south uh, south heights baptist dot uh, com website his name is uh, Dr. Angel Martinez, and uh, this is his story. It's a com- how he found God, his walk, and how he how he got on his pathway to to God. And uh, he was a, a preacher. He's a great man. He preaches. It's a great story. It really touched my heart, and I just want to share it with you guys. It's going to be a long one. This episode's going to be long. I'm going to blow past the 20 minute mark. I usually go 27 minutes. I know. Uh, we're going to blow past the 27th mark. I mean, you, you might have sit back. You might want to do this in two sections. I don't know. We're, we're talking his his little sermon that I'm going to play for you is 40 minutes long. I'm six minutes into this, so we're 46 minutes until all together. So I'm going to stop right now because I don't want to go into 50 minutes. I know that's close to an hour. But, so it's, uh, it's a 40 minutes long, and uh, here it comes right now. All right, thank you. And uh, the, uh, the, when he's over, it'll be over, so... Uh, uh, I'm going to say my goodbye now, but uh, continue to listen. So remember to say something nice to somebody you don't know, because uh, we was all strangers once too. And love each other, because uh, love each other as you like to be loved, because God's greatest commandment. And uh, I think that's it. All right, your friend in Christ, Dave, bye. I became a Christian July the 8th, 1935, in the city of San Antonio, Texas. We had a lovely neighbor whose name was Mrs. Montgomery, who would visit our home every Sunday afternoon. And she would say to my mother, Miss Martinez, let me take your children with my children to our little Baptist Sunday school. But my mother would not give consent. We were devout members of the Roman Catholic Church. My father was born in Spain, my mother in Mexico. And shortly before my birth, they came to Texas. I was the oldest of five children. At this time, I was 13 years of age. I was very faithful and devoted to the Catholic Church. I was an altar boy in the church. I was going to become a priest 
when I became older. All my education was being geared in that direction. My mother almost died in childbirth in giving me birth. I was her firstborn. And in the midst of her agony, she had promised God, if you spare my life and spare the life of my boy, I'll give him to the church. And from as far back as I can remember, my mother had reminded me that I was going to be a Catholic priest in the church. And this neighbor would come every Sunday afternoon, and she would request my mother to give us permission to attend this little Baptist mission. But my mother would not give consent. She must have come 25 times, over and over again. Time and time and again, she repeated the invitation. And then one Sunday afternoon, she came as she had done before and renewed the invitation. And I heard my mother say something I never dreamed my mother would say. She gave consent. She said, all right, Miss Montgomery, for this one time, I am going to give permission to my children to go with you and yours to your little Baptist church. I was amazed. But then I thought, well, the rest can go if they want to. They're younger. They don't know better. It won't be held against them. But I said, I know better. And I am not going. And all the others got ready to attend the mission. And when Mrs. Montgomery saw I was not in the group, she said, where's Angel? And when she found me, totally unprepared to go, she said, son, what's wrong? Why aren't you ready? Didn't you hear your mother give permission? And I said, yes, Miss Montgomery, but I am not going. And I don't appreciate your coming to invite our family to attend your church. I said, we have a church of our own. We attend faithfully every Sunday and often during the week. I said, no, ma'am, the rest can go if they so choose, but I never plan to go. Don't ask me again. And this neighbor, lovely woman, realizing I was upset, put her arm on my shoulder. She said, Angel, that's all right. You don't care to go. You don't have to go. She said, I thought maybe you desired to go. Sunday afternoon, nothing much doing around the house. Time gets heavy on your hands. No conflict with any of your church services. And she said, furthermore, in this little Baptist mission, many Mexican boys and girls attend. You would meet some new friends. And she said, furthermore, when the service comes to a finish, they give to all the boys and girls who come some ice cream and a bag of cookies. But she said, since you don't care to go, goodbye and God bless you. And she turned to leave. And I stopped her. And I said, God bless me nothing. Come back here. I said, would you repeat the part about the ice cream once more? I do not know how it was at your house in 1935, but around my place, we were having the Depression. Do you folks my age remember the Depression? Those were horrible days. 
And I'm not exaggerating when I say that when she mentioned free ice cream for attending church, I had not tasted ice cream for more than a year. We couldn't afford it. And I said, Miss Montgomery, do you mean to tell me if I go to your Baptist church when the service comes to a conclusion, they will give me some ice cream free? She said, that's correct. I said, you know, it does get lonesome around this place on Sunday afternoon. I said, would you mind if I went with you? Come. She said, I've been trying to get you to go for more than six months. And so we went to a little Baptist church. And there were about a hundred boys and girls in the congregation. And I thought there was a big number. And I was worried because I wondered if we had enough ice cream for all these people. And I had never been to a Baptist church, and so I wondered. And then the superintendent of the mission, not a preacher, stood and led us in some songs. And then when we finished the songs, he said, we're going to go to our classes by ages. And he said, in 45 minutes, a bell will ring. And boys and girls, when the bell rings, everyone form a line at the front door, single file. We have orange sherbet for you this afternoon. And we all rejoiced. I was 13 years of age, so I went with the 13-year-old boys to a little small group, a Sunday school teacher. But I didn't hear too much of the lesson because I was worrying about this bell he had mentioned. He said in 45 minutes a bell will ring. And I thought if I get to listening and get absorbed with a Sunday school lesson, perhaps I'll miss the bell. And then I began to wonder, they have so many here, a hundred or more. Do they have enough for everyone? Enough ice cream for every boy and girl? I said, what if I get in line when they ring this bell and I get in line number 20 or number 35? Or number 60, it could be possible. And I said, what if when they get to me, they look down and say, sorry, son, the ice cream is gone. I said, wouldn't that be a catastrophe? And then I thought, well, why not be the first one? And then if anyone gets ice cream, you'll get some because you're number one. And that idea satisfied me. And I waited for the bell. And 45 minutes seemed like 45 hours. You know how time can drag its feet when something wonderful is in prospect. And then they rang the bell. You've never heard such a stampede in all of your life. Every boy and girl in that Sunday school had the same idea I had. We met in the aisle trying to find a position in the line and we scuffled and fought and fell and scratched and got up again and fell again and for about 10 minutes this tremendous stampede in the aisles jockeying for position. And finally the line formed. Single file. A hundred deep. Guess who was first? And as I stood there, I looked down, and there was a big five-gallon can of orange sherbet, enough for everyone. And all this scuffling and fighting had been for naught. There was enough for everyone. But as I stood there before they began to distribute the ice cream, a second problem arose in my mind. 
And I thought, well, there's enough here for everyone, but now I wonder how much are they going to give each person? And then I thought, well, if they give us one dip apiece, that is more than I've seen in over a year. And just about that time, the superintendent, who wasn't a minister, he was a pastor of this church, but not a preacher, a businessman, wonderful Christian, he came. He was the one who had made the announcement. He was the one who was going to distribute the ice cream. And he looked at me, and I guess he realized I was a new face. There for the first time. I had never been there previously. And I think, trying to make an impression on me so I would return, he got a big container, a big paper cup, and he took the scoop and reached in the can, put a dip in the cup. Second time, second dip in the cup. Third, fourth, fifth. And he kept on going. Then I began to wonder. I thought, is that all for me? Or maybe all of us are going to eat out of the same cup. But believe it or not, he gave it all to me. And then he gave me a bag of cookies, and I'll never forget it. He reached down and he patted me on the back and said, God bless you, my boy, come again. And I became so excited, I reached up and patted him on the back. <laughs> I said, God bless you too, brother, I'll be back. <laughs> and I went outdoors and I ate ice cream to my heart's content. And when I finished, one of my little friends whom I knew at school approached me and said, Are you going to be here tonight? Now, this was three in the afternoon. I said, Where? I said, Are they having some more church here tonight? Eight o'clock. And then I thought, Maybe Baptists give ice cream every time one comes to church. I was a Catholic. I didn't know. And the man invited me to return. So that night, I attended the service. But they didn't do it. It was just a Sunday afternoon affair. In fact, this was a different kind of service. We all sat together in one place as we're doing here. We sang for about 30 minutes, and then the superintendent introduced an old retired Baptist preacher. And that old man opened the Bible to the third chapter of John and preached on Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I had never heard a sermon like that in my life. I had been baptized in the Catholic Church when I was six weeks old. I still have my baptismal certificate. I was an altar boy in the church. I knew the structure of the Mass from one end to the other, being an altar boy in the church. But I had never heard about being born again. And that night that old retired Baptist preacher told us what it meant to be born again. He said, you're not born again by being baptized. You're not born again because you're a member of a church. You're not born again because you live a good life. You're born again because you meet Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross and accept him as your personal Savior. And I thought, that night, I've never been born again. I'm a member of the Catholic Church because my mother and daddy made me a Catholic when I was six weeks old. And they are members because their parents made them members when they were babies. And our religion has been handed down like an heirloom from one generation to the next. And I became very disturbed. And that night I left 
this little Baptist church disturbed but resolved that I would return the next night because in the course of the announcements I heard them say they were going to have a service every night of the following week. And I learned later that in this little Baptist mission they had a service every night of the year. And the superintendent would not preach, but he would import pastors from the various churches to take turn each night. I was a shoeshine boy by profession. So I shined shoes all day Monday and came to church that night and heard a different pastor preach and my conviction and concern deepened. I shined shoes all day Tuesday and returned that night and heard another sermon, a different preacher. My concern and conviction deepened some more. I was a shoeshine boy by profession, been shining shoes since I was eight years old. I'd been shining shoes for five years. I used to shine shoes for two cents a pair. Now don't feel sorry for me. The way I shined them, that's all they were worth. <laughs> and I remember on this Wednesday I shined shoes all day and I came late to the church. With my shine box in my hand I sat in the rear of the sanctuary. And the minister arose to speak. And he apologized. He said, folks, I'm not feeling well tonight, and I'm not going to preach a long sermon. He read John 3.16, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And for about 20 minutes that minister preached from John 3.16. And he told us how God loved the world. I knew about that. I'd been taught that in the Catholic Church. And then he spoke about Jesus dying on the cross. He gave his only begotten son, and I knew about that. We had him crucified in our church in images, on crosses, on the walls of my church where I served as an altar boy. I had a crucifix around my neck with Jesus on it. I knew about the cross. But here's the part that said something brand new and brought the light of heaven to my heart, that whosoever believeth in him has everlasting life, shall be saved forever. Just by trusting Jesus, not by being a church member, not by keeping sacraments, not by living a, this kind of life or the other, by trusting Jesus. And the preacher said he'll save you forever because he promised to do it. And I thought if that's true, that is the most wonderful thing in the world. I'd love to know I'm saved forever by simply putting my faith in Jesus Christ. And when the minister finished the sermon that night, he gave an invitation. And he said, if anyone wants to be saved, come to the front. And they began to sing. And my heart was heavy. And my mind was troubled. And that night, July the 8th, 1935, with my shine box in my hand, barefooted, a little shoeshine boy from the streets of San Antonio. And when I was 13, I looked like I was about seven. I was very small for my age. My father's a big man. My mother is four feet ten. And I had taken after my mother. And that night I walked down the aisle with my shine box. And I told the preacher, I want to be saved. And the superintendent said, kneel. And I knelt by the side of a little chair. And then he called his wife, a little cultured lady. And she came and knelt by my side and opened the New Testament read some scriptures, told me how to be saved. 
And that night, July the 8th, 1935, became the most pivotal night of my life. I recommend this experience to every person in this congregation tonight, to every boy and girl, to every man and woman, to every young person. Come to a moment in your life when sincerely and genuinely you say to Jesus Christ, tonight, the best I know how, I receive you as my personal Savior. I was the only person who responded to the invitation that night. No one else came. But all the nights that followed were beautiful for me. I could hardly wait for the service at night. I'd shine shoes all day. And I was in service every night. Every night. And I came to everything. Every service. I think when you get saved, you love to go to church. I joined the Sunday school. I joined training union. I even tried to, tried to join the WMU. Wouldn't let me. I remember how beautiful those days and nights were, and the days went by and the weeks went by, and then the storm broke. My mother and father discovered I had become a Baptist, and I cannot describe it to you. They went to pieces. They shattered, especially my mother. You see, all her dreams had been broken. And when they discovered it, and they also believed that if I died in that condition, I would go to hell. I was outside the church. And they began doing everything in their power to retreat me. My father using force, my mother using tenderness. And for two months I walked in the valley of the shadow of death. And every night my little mother would come to my bedside and say, I want to pray the rosary for you. And she'd pray the Lord's Prayer in Spanish, and then ten Hail Marys and a Gloria Patri, and repeat the sequence. And I can hear her now in Spanish saying the Lord's Prayer. I can hear her saying in Spanish, Padre Nuestro, que estás en los cielos, santificado, sea tu nombre, venga tu reino. And on and on she prayed. Every night and week as she prayed. And then she would take my face between her two hands and say, Son, you've broken my heart. Promise me that you'll forget what you've done, that you'll never return to that mission, and we'll forget it, please, for Mama. And I can't describe it to you. I didn't mind facing my father. My father was a Catholic, but he attended church once or twice a year. But my little Mexican mother went every morning to Mass. I had seen her rise as far back as I could remember at 6 o'clock in the morning and walked ten blocks in the rain and the cold, improperly attired for the weather on the outside. Go to Mass, and then return an hour later and change her clothing and fix our lunches and send us to school. She was a devout Catholic, and she'd weep with me, beg me. And I walked in the valley of the shadow of death for two months in my home, and now I'm going to skip these two months because they belong to my heart. And I never shared this with a congregation. But I walked in the valley of the shadow of death in my home, and the breach between my parents and me became wider and wider. And whenever my heart was heavy, I would talk to these two people, the superintendent and his wife, and they understood my problem. And they would pray with me, read the Bible to me, 
encourage me. And one Wednesday morning in September, I was talking to them, and this Brother Sayers, wonderful man, said, Angel, you know I don't preach, I'm just a superintendent here, and I import pastors to take turns. And he said, I have a man for tonight, this is Wednesday, to preach tonight, and I have one for Thursday, and one for Friday, and one for Saturday, but I have no one for Sunday night. And I said, well, who's going to preach? He looked at me and said, Son, I want you to preach your first sermon next Sunday night. Now, let me tell you this. In the course of many conversations with this wonderful man and his wife, I had told them when I was a Catholic, I was going to be a priest. Now that I'm a Baptist, I'm going to be a Baptist preacher. I had told them that. But I didn't plan to begin right away, you know. I thought I was supposed to go to school, I was just in junior high, the eighth grade, and then go to high school and college and seminary, and then preach. He said, start next Sunday. I said, Brother Sayers, I cannot preach next Sunday. And I began to rebel. And this wonderful man began to cry. And he was my friend. He and his wife had been like a father and a mother to me. And within my heart, I thought, this man's asking you for a favor. He's been good to you, he's listened to your troubles, and he's encouraged you. What would you have done without him during these days? And without his wife, who they've been so wonderful to you. And then I thought, here's your opportunity to say thank you. He's asking you for a favor. And I said, Brother Sayers, do you think I can preach next Sunday night? He said, yes. I believe it's in you. I think you can do it. I said, all right, I'll do my best. He said, wonderful, wonderful. Now he said, get busy and prepare a good sermon because I'm going to advertise you. I'm going to announce it. And because you're a Mexican boy, 13 years of age, preaching your first sermon in English probably will have the largest crowd we've ever had in this little church. And that scared me. I said, Brother Sayers, don't advertise it. Don't say a word about it. Let's have the smallest crowd you ever had next Sunday night. He said, Son, God will take care of you. I said, Somebody surely better. I didn't know a thing about preaching. I didn't know a thing about preparing a sermon as I do now and getting a text and analyzing it. I didn't know a thing. You know what I did? We had a big bunch of tracts in the vestibule of this little Baptist mission. You've seen little pamphlets. They're very short on various subjects. I got 50 different kinds and put them in my pocket. And I went down to the San Antonio River and under a bridge where no one could bother me. I was there in a meeting recently in the First Baptist Church and Steve was in town and I took him to this very place and said, Steve, right here, I prepared my first sermon 33 years ago. And under that bridge where no one could bother me, we have a beautiful river in San Antonio that meanders through the downtown section of the city. I got under a bridge where no one could bother me, and I took all these pamphlets out and built my first sermon. And I had noticed that all the preachers that I had listened to, and we had a different one every night, always had a piece of paper we called notes. You know, they use a piece of paper to preach. And I thought, I better get me some. And you know what I did? I made a point out of each pamphlet. I had 50 pamphlets. 
So when I finished my sermon, had 50 points. Now that's too many. If you've come to hear me preach this week, I've told you my points. Maybe three or four, but never more. The first sermon I had, 50. And you know every night I'd watch preachers. After I finished building my sermon, I'd watch preachers. How they sat on the platform. How they held their Bible when they approached the platform. How they opened the Bible and read the scripture. How they gestured. How they moved their arms when they preached. Some did this. And some did that. And some came at it from this angle. But they all had different ways of moving their arms. And I noticed, and I learned from watching preachers. And I noticed every time they would make a transition in their sermon, that is, move from one point to the next, they would do it adverbially. They wouldn't say number one, they'd say firstly. They wouldn't say now number two, they'd say secondly. And I thought as I sat there and learned for four nights before my night to preach on Sunday, and listen to all these preachers and learn much from them, I thought, now remember that. Remember that. Don't you say number one, say firstly, secondly, third. But can you imagine my problem? The night I got up to preach, I was up there saying, thirty-fourthly. Twenty-secondly. Fifteenthly. But the nights went by. And you know, by Saturday, I could go from point one to point fifty in sequence without even consulting the paper. I was prepared, and I was anxious. And then came Sunday night, and I began to dress for the service at six o'clock. Do you know in this little mission, we were poor people? I had lost contact at home because mother and dad were so irate with me and so angry because I had remained faithful to the Baptist church. The women of the church began to wonder, what is he going to wear when they began to hear the announcement that I was going to preach? You know, women think about things like that. The men don't. They're too dumb. It never dawns on them. But the ladies of the church got to wondering, and one night on Thursday, night before the Sunday I preached, one of them approached me because I always went barefoot. I always went barefoot. I didn't have shoes. I didn't own a pair of shoes. And she said, Angel, we're so happy you're going to preach next Sunday night, but son, what shoes are you going to wear when you preach? And that's the first I thought about it. I was so busy with uh, 42ndly, I hadn't thought about shoes. I said, shoes? She said, yes, shoes. I said, no shoes. <gasps> she almost fainted. She said, you mean to tell me you're going to preach barefooted? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, son, I've been going to church for 25 years, and I've never heard a barefooted preacher in my life. I said, you'll hear your first one next Sunday night. She said, no, I won't. No, I won't. I'm going to bring you a pair of shoes. And she had a little boy about my size, and she had bought him a new pair of shoes recently and had put the others in the closet, and she brought them out and brought them to me and said, wear these. They were worn out. You know, back in 1935, when they wore shoes out, dear hearts, they didn't mess around. And you know what she did to fix them for me? She got a cardboard, a piece of cardboard. You old mothers have done this. And cut a piece of cardboard and put some soles on the inside, because if she had not done that, I would have been barefooted anyway. And she brought them and said, wear these when you preach. And the next night, another dear lady brought me a shirt. A shirt, homemade out of a bedsheet. No one could afford to buy things in those days. 
homemade, so she brought me a shirt out of a bed sheet. And then the next night on Saturday, before the Sunday, when I was supposed to preach, a school teacher, an old maid school teacher. This wonderful little woman had never married. She was a devout member of this little mission. She taught the third grade. She'd teach all day and come to church every night. Everyone loved her, Miss Corey. And she brought me a pair of trousers on Saturday night before the Sunday when I was to preach. She said, wear these when you preach tomorrow night. And I looked at them, and they were nice. And I said, Miss Corey, thank you, but where did you buy them? She said, I did not buy them. I made them with my own two hands. And I thought of all people, an old maid, what does she know about making trousers for a member of the opposite sex? It puzzled me, but they were nice, and so I hung them up. And the next day, Sunday, when I was preparing to preach, I put on the shoes, put on the shirt, no coat, didn't have a complete suit to preach in. And no one gave me a tie, but I had a tie that I'd gotten for Christmas, a little red tie. And I loved this little red tie. I used to wear it everywhere I went. My mother would say, go to the store. I'd say, all right, Ma, let me put on my tie. One of my boyfriends would come and say, let's play baseball, Angel. I'd say, okay, Jimmy, be right with you. Let me put on my tie. I always believed in wearing a tie. A lot of times didn't wear a shirt, but I always wore a tie. And so I put on this little red tie and then put on the trousers the old maid had given me the night before. And I was dressed for the service. And you know when you're dressed, invariably, you'll look in the mirror. And I thought, I'm going to see how I look. And so I stood before the mirror, and I was shocked. I said, I'm very nervous. This sermon I'm going to preach in two hours. This was six o'clock. I was to preach at eight. I said, this sermon I'm going to preach in two hours has made me nervous because I put the trousers on backwards. And so I removed the trousers, I turned them carefully around, I put them back on once more, I looked once again in the mirror, and they were still backwards. That's an old maid for you. And when I walked in to preach that night, you couldn't tell by looking whether I was coming or going. In that regalia, I preached my first sermon. At eight o'clock we began, and the advertising and the announcing had succeeded. In a little church seating 300 people, we must have had 500 people in the audience. They were standing around the wall. Every available space had been taken. One big conglomeration of people in the congregation. We sang for about 30 minutes, and then the superintendent introduced me, and he was so excited because of this big crowd. He said some things about me he shouldn't have said. He bragged on me and just told them all about my two months as a Christian. Now he's going to preach his first sermon. And he said, I want to present to you Dr. Angel Martinez. <laughs> he called me a doctor. And at that time, I wasn't even a practical nurse. 
And he said, here's a doctor. And I arose to speak. And no one told me how long to preach. No one said you're supposed to preach 30 minutes or 20. No one told me. I guess among the adults, they thought, oh, he's a boy. He won't last too long. Do you know how long it took me to go from firstly to fiftiethly? One hour and 15 minutes. One hour and 15 minutes. And as I was preaching, I guess I had been preaching about 15 minutes. And I was looking at the congregation and pouring my heart out right down the line, eighthly, ninthly, twelfthly, and so forth. Then suddenly, in the congregation, I saw one of the most beautiful faces I've ever seen in my life. My little mother was in the audience. And I did not know it. Had somebody told me two or three days before your mother's going to be present, I would have said, you're mistaken. I know my mother. She wouldn't attend the Baptist church. There she sat. And by her side, a brother, a sister, a sister, a brother, the entire family, except my father. And when I saw my mother in that congregation, I lost everyone else. And for the rest of my sermon, I preached to her. And I haven't told you the whole story. The breach between my parents and me had gotten wider and wider in the home. And I thought, oh God, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing tonight if when I gave the invitation, my little mother would be saved? Oh God, I would pray as I preached, do for her what you did for me a few weeks ago. Save her. Savior. And I was praying that prayer. And even though everybody laughed every time I'd say 24thly and 32ndly, as the sermon deepened, the power of God began to fall upon that congregation. And the children were listening. And the men were wiping tears from their eyes. And the women were crying unashamedly. My mother was crying. And I have forgotten all the other points, but number 50 was tell them all you know about Jesus. And when I finished telling them about him, there wasn't a dry eye in the congregation. The power of God had fallen upon the people. And I finished my sermon by saying we're going to stand in sin. And if anyone in this audience wants to be saved, leave your seat and come to the front. We'll be here to help you when you come. The audience stood, and the choir began to sing the old invitation hymn, Just as I am without one plea, and that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And we had not sung one line of that song. And suddenly, people began to move in the congregation, and I thought, someone's leaving. We've been packed in for two hours. It was a hot September night in San Antonio, Texas. I thought someone's leaving, but I was mistaken. Someone was coming forward, pushing people, moving chairs. And I looked down the aisle to see who was coming. And let me say it very slowly, because it seems 
as if though it happened just last night. God had answered the prayer of my broken heart, my little Mexican mother, the first convert of my ministry 33 years ago, was coming down the aisle, shoving people in pushing chairs. And when she got out in the open where she could see me and I could see her, she extended her arms to me. We had so much trouble at home, and I couldn't wait till she got to the front. I left the platform and ran down the aisle to meet her. And she put her arms around my neck and said, Angel, I want Jesus Christ to do for me what he's done for you. I want to trust Jesus only, only Jesus. In Spanish, she was saying it, solamente Cristo, Cristo solamente, only Jesus. And I knelt with my mother at the altar, and she became my first convert 33 years ago. And last week, she was made Mother of the Year of two million Baptists in the state of Texas. She's 72 and a wonderful Christian. Oh, I thank God for a Christian mother. She's been an inspiration to me in 33 years of preaching. I looked up and saw a brother coming, a sister, a brother, another sister, the entire family except my father. And 25 other people were saved that night. And later my father, who still lives, also accepted Jesus. And you know what I've been doing for 33 years? I've been running up and down America, bragging on Jesus Christ. And I haven't told this story to amuse you. Many of the things you laughed at were not funny 33 years ago. But I told this story for just one purpose. I wanted you to see the hand of God. If God could reach down into a humble Mexican home and save a shoeshine boy and call him to preach and save his mother and father and brothers and sisters, if God can do it for my family, he can do it for anyone in this congregation tonight. Let's bow for a moment of prayer.